this. Yes, Blockbuster Film School. This is Blockbuster Film School. Welcome in to the Blockbuster Film School. I'm Alex Bonner, professor here at the Blockbuster Film School, joined as always by your headmaster, the lovely Mr. Nick Souter. Hello. And of course we have super producer Brian Tepps. Oh, hi. And... <laughs> Calm down, Brian. <laughs> Brian has his fangs out, as well as his really very, very long, luxurious fingernails. He can grow them and shrink them at will. I you're going to make a dick joke. Oh, would I make a dick joke, Nick? Is that the kind of person I am? Yes. Yes, that's correct. You are. Uh, <laughs> nailed it. Uh, hey, everybody. You're here to listen to us talk about movies. It's the only thing we're good at. And we are not going to let you down. We're good at a lot of stuff. Well, Nick is. And Brian's very good at mm, recording things. <laughs> I have the complaints to prove I'm not. I pulled off a cartwheel one time when I was like Sweet. 10. Pull it off pretty Which solid. one's a somersault? Is that the roll or is that the side? That's when you roll. Okay. The car wheel is the side to side. Oh, that's, that's the hard yeah. one. That's a, yeah. I can do a Chris Farley cartwheel. I would Where believe it's like that. hands flip and next thing you know, you're high on heroin and cocaine at the same time. <laughs> but always in classic, when you land it, then you just fall backwards into something. Yeah. As Chris Farley was a master of falling into things. Just sort of like how uh, David Spade fell into Chris Farley's career. <laughs> oh, fall it up. Oh, don't go after Spade. Uh, also, David Spade, one time his old assistant went crazy and tried to break or did break into his house yeah. in the middle of the night. And little known fact, David Spade is more like Joe Dirt than you think he is. And he had an assault rifle under his bed because he's from Arizona and he literally fought off. A intruder with a machine gun. None of this is surprising at all. <laughs> I think a lot of people just see him as exclusively weekend update spade, and they think Joe Dirt is not his real personality. <laughs> Ooh, auto trader. Well, David Spade is not who we're talking about this evening. Instead, normally I say something sarcastic like, this is one of the great performers in the history of Hollywood, and then I say an insane name. Tonight, we are not doing that. Literally, we are doing one of the great, truly, truly greatest film actors in the history of at least Hollywood, possibly in the history of humanity. His name is Humanity. Yes. His name is Philip Seymour Hoffman. Big, big snaps for him. R.I.P., obviously. I miss Philip Seymour Hoffman more than I miss... 90% 90% of my deceased family. <laughs> I've also never threatened to go piss on Philip Seymour Hoffman's graves. So <laughs> he's got that going for him. You know, I am also simpatico on that. I have never threatened yeah. to piss on Philip Seymour Hoffman's grave. I do think. Tep says he just raised yeah, his hand. Tep's. Wow. <laughs> As he finishes his shot. It was down to the last, the last audition between Philip Seymour Hoffman and. I would assume at that time a 16-year-old Teps to play the character he plays in Boogie Nights. And Philip Seymour Hoffman got it. He was like, that son of a bitch. Actually, oh. I have an audio recording of it if you want to hear Teps' audition. Can you play it? Yeah, you ready? <laughs> I'm a fucking idiot. <laughs> 
we wanted you, but you kept hissing like a vampire. Yeah. You were nailing the lines. He also just kept insisting in that even though it's California, his characters wore a cape at all times. <laughs> PT was almost into it, though. That much cocaine? You're in everything. <laughs> no. PT and Philip Seymour are very, very connected. We'll get into all of that. Nick, let's start with our first gambit. Do you remember the first movie you ever saw with Philip Seymour Hoffman? I remember the first time I remember mm. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Because he was in um, Scent of a Woman, yes. which I had seen on USA, <laughs> which that version was directed by... Uh, Alan Bress actually directed it. Alan Smithy directed that yes, one. Yes, yes. Which is hilarious. Alan Smithy didn't direct the original cut, but he <laughs> was- Just the USA yeah, cut. Yeah, just the USA cut where they added all the- Anyways, <laughs> so like he was in that and he was in something else I remember seeing, but having cable growing up, Sundance and Showtime are owned by the same people. Now it's Viacom. I don't remember who owned them then, but every D- Monday- <laughs> Yeah. Every Monday night, there would be- Sundance on Showtime and Showtime would show a independent film that was on Sundance channel, like premiering on the Sundance channel. I think I mentioned this before. Like I saw Day Trippers. I saw Trees Lounge and one glorious, ultimately dismal, dark (laughs) Monday night. (laughs) They showed Paul Thomas Anderson's debut movie. Yes. Heart eight. And Philip Seymour Hoffman's in there with his fucking mullet. He has one scene, and he's just yelling at fucking Philip Baker Hall. Come on, old man. Have some fun. Some fun. And he's like, I'm going to light my cigarette. You place your bet. You place your... I'm lighting. And he lights the match. He's like, he hits the fucking cigarette. And then Philip Baker Hall puts like $1,000 down or something. And he just goes, oh, shit. All right, man. And then the rest of the scene plays out. But I just remember watching that. I was like... Holy shit, who is this fucking yes. insane person? <laughs> I think PT also said that. I think Paul yeah. Thomas Anderson also said to himself, who the fuck is this lunatic? <laughs> I have to put him in all of my movies, which we will talk about also. You bring up the fact that he started in Paul Thomas Anderson's first movie, Hard Eight, and then he'll move along. He'll get bigger and bigger roles all the way up till he'll get a starring role. And... For me, though, I kind of did remember him in Scent of a Woman as being the prick bully of Chris O'Donnell. But then, I mean, as you do, you should bully. Just so you know, everyone should bully Chris O'Donnell. When you see him on the street, he's into it. He's kind of a cuck as a personality. That's his thing. And then he's like, thank you for bullying me, daddy. He says that, which is weird when he says that on the street. It's confusing. But He also keeps asking if he's pretty. (laughs) Now, if Chris O'Donnell wasn't bullied, he would never wound up robbing. Exactly. He's getting bullied. Never had bat nipples. Right. And that brings us back to our Joel Schumacher episode. Totally. No one would have murdered his trapeze family or whatever. Yes, exactly. That's so true. And what's weird, though, is that the role that I really, truly first remember being like, I think this guy is something else. He played a similar character in The Talented Mr. Ripley, where he was this weird, super rich man child who thought he was like the sexiest man in the world. And the fact that it's not that Philip Seymour Hoffman was not a good looking man, but the fact he was in a movie with young baby, Matt Damon and Jude law, so Matt Damon, when he was still using gay slurs, <laughs> yes, yes. just willy nilly. Like he was still in Boston. He has to impress Casey Affleck. And 
I just loved him in it. I mean, he's an awful character. He's an awful. Yeah. But the way that he portrays it with this just like next level confidence and the fact that Hoffman could do anything, he could just do anything and make you sort of enjoy it. As you said, being a weird, abrasive, redneck, gambling weirdo. I mean, it just didn't matter. He's so fun to watch. And he never did anything I didn't believe. Ah, That's a very good way of putting it. When he was in that terrible Ben Stiller movie. Hmm. And he talks about sharding, which is also <laughs> the first time I heard the phrase sharding. Is that a long came Polly? Sure. Um, <laughs> when they're playing fucking pickup basketball. Oh, yeah. Jesus. But like <laughs> in his pickup basketball outfit. Sorry. Oh, it's I amazing. Derail. But like he walks up to Ben Stiller and they're at the art show or whatever. And he's just like, we got to go. I sharded right now. I was like, I think he did. Shit I think he pants. may have actually yeah. shit his pants. We'll talk about two. He was not a founding member, but he kind of became the leader of this really respected off-Broadway group called the Labyrinth Theater, where he would get nominated for Tony Awards and do a lot of really cool stuff. And one of the other main members, after he died, said something along the lines of that Phil was not a method actor, but the way that he would just lose himself in characters on stage was nobody else did that. Nobody else just became these other people and he wasn't a complete loon like where he had to be in costume and you had to address him as the character. He was Philip Seymour Hoffman until he went on stage and then he wasn't. And I just found that to be very interesting that theater actors get a weird element in their mind, especially when they have to do a show like eight days a week for weeks at a time, fully immersing themselves, particularly like him and very dark characters, taking big, deep psychonaut dives into these people. It seems heavy. I did acting in like high school, and even that sometimes was kind of taxing, kind of strange. But let's start with our usual thing. We're just going to talk about him. Philip Hoffman, he adopted the middle name Seymour, which was his maternal grandfather's name. And he adopted that as his kind of middle part of his name because there was already an actor named Philip Hoffman. He was born July 23rd, 1967, so his birthday was just the other day in Fairport, New York, which is a suburb of Rochester. So he grew up in a dirtball place, but also kind of a strangely iconic place. His parents split up when he was very young, but his mother was very supportive of him being an actor, and she was a lawyer, and she ended up being a judge. Oh, wow. Yeah, his uh, dad worked for Xerox and was a kind of salesman character. Kind of interesting in that way that he sometimes plays these kind of very aggressive salesman type characters. Interesting a little bit. As well as, uh, like his mom being a judge, sometimes plays these very stately under fire kind of people. He talked about when he was a young man that his mother took him to see a Sam Shepard play. And it basically just like entirely changed his brain. He didn't even think about doing it. He was 14 or 15. He saw the play. He called it. It was a miracle. He literally couldn't believe what he was seeing. R.I.P. Sam Shepard. Yes. Also. Aside from being the legendary co-star of Baby Boom. (laughs) He was a fucking phenomenal writer. He was a phenomenal writer. Like electric. Also with his Labyrinth Theater Company, as you bring that up. I wish I could have seen that, but John C. Riley and him were in a version of True West where they both got nominated for Tonys. Wow. And if you don't know about True West, it's about two estranged brothers who are kind of violent. Not kind of. The e- violent brothers. Every night they would rotate. They would play the different brothers. One would play one brother, and then the next night they would switch. 
And man, a little bit of a time machine on that one where if I could go see the Philip Seymour Hoffman, John C. Riley, True West, that would be pretty sweet. But yeah, let's just get into his career because strangely enough, he started acting pretty early on in high school. He wanted to be a wrestler, actually. He was a pretty well-respected wrestler and a football player. And he hurt his neck. He hurt his neck really badly to the point where they told him he shouldn't do sports anymore. And he was pretty depressed. And his mom was like, you love going into to New York and seeing plays with me. Why don't you try one of these acting clubs in Rochester? And he said that he did it because when he went to check out one of the acting clubs, there were several women there that he was like, I am very attracted to these women. And you know, <laughs> like I always knew he and I did things for the wrong reasons. <laughs> So he joined an acting club, but then by the age of 17, he was selected to attend the 1984 New York State Summer School of the Arts in Saratoga Springs, which if you don't know, is kind of one of those acting camps that is basically a conduit. It's basically a place for young actors to go for places like NYU to just look at you and see if they like you. And they liked him. And he went to NYU Tisch School of the Arts for acting, which once again is To be quite honest, it's the MIT of acting, if we're being honest, in the United States anyway. And he excelled at it. And coming out of it in 1991, he was on an episode of Law & Order. (laughs) That was his first thing. Have you ever seen his episode of Law & Order, Nick? I mean, theoretically, yeah, because every episode (laughs) of Law & Order is the same. (laughs) Was he Jerry Orbach? No, he was not. He was accused of rape. His character. Yeah, I was about to say, he was either accused of rape, a murderer, <laughs> yes. or he was a guy moving a box. <laughs> On the just kept moving. The, he just kept moving the boxes while being asked questions. <laughs> After that, he made an independent film called Triple Bogey on a Par 5 Hole. I've never seen that. Have you ever seen that? It's a black and white noir, I guess. Um, no. <laughs> but... He decides after that he still lives in New York, but that independent movie, along with Tisch School of the Arts friends, gets him an agent and his agent gets him a movie in 1992. The Richard Pierce kind of underrated cult classic to some people. It's a movie called Leap of Faith, starring Steve Martin and Deborah Winger about a Christian faith healer who is full of shit. And he plays a really interesting little character where he is a criminal that Steve Martin convinces to kind of turn from the darkness, even though using his con powers for good. Have you seen Leap of Faith? Yeah, I saw Leap of Faith. I haven't seen it in 30 years. I know. The last time I saw it, our friend Caesar was still in the womb. Um, I remember liking this movie. I remember, I don't remember Philip Seymour Hoffman in this at all. I just remember the scenes where, Steve Martin is full of shit with that coat in yeah. front of the crowd. Oh, yeah. Other than that, I don't remember a goddamn thing about this movie. That is true. I kind of remember him in it a little bit, but same. I think that's a rewatch. Yeah. I think we should rewatch it. Again, it could have been Jerry Orbach. <laughs> it may have been Jerry Orbach. This is the Jerry Orbach episode. We're just going to insert him into. Potentially the Jerry Orbach yeah. episode. <laughs> then, after that, the next big movie he does. Hua! Yeah, listen up. You have you have a goal, and you have a woman, and then you a blind, and you let me drive a Ferrari, sweetie, and I I give you a thousand dollars. This car's worth four hundred thousand dollars. I give you a thousand dollars and a kiss, and let me drive the Ferrari. Hua! 
What do you think of Scent of a Woman, Nick? Just your I try not to. Yeah, fair. It's fucking dumb. <laughs> it's so stupid. Just give out Oscars for the right fucking movie, and then you won't have Oscar bait movies, like, years after people should have gotten an award, and they're walking around with their eyes open, pretending they can't fucking see this schmuck actor in front of them before he puts on tights and beat up Tommy Lee Jones. It's like, it's so stupid. Just... You know, maybe stop giving out awards. They're all meaningless, and then we won't have to watch. How will I know that I'm good? How will I know that I'm good if I don't have an award? If you can sleep at night, you're doing okay. I haven't slept in seven years. (laughs) It shows. Uh, (laughs) What? I just hand Nick an award, and then he just falls asleep. Immediately. Like like a baby. No, Central Woman's stupid. Don't care about anybody or anything that's happening in this movie. It's true. I'm not as like mega against it, but I find its stupidity charming. I will say that there's a great charm to its stupidity of watching Al Pacino just walk around sort of harassing people in a fun out. I would imagine like Al Pacino does where he just is not pretending to be blind, but he just walks into a restaurant. He's like, yeah, how's it going? Oh, you're real. Oh, you're real. Look, were you in the army? Well, blah, blah, blah. You're like, this guy's just having a conversation with himself. And then he just sits at any table he wants and just orders nonsense. Yeah. He's like, I want turtle soup. And uh, I want uh, you to mix red and white wine together in a glass. Like I had ravioli <laughs> half an hour ago. <laughs> and that's basically the movie is just watching Al Pacino, just chew scenery. Yeah. And, he dances with yeah that one woman whose name I can't remember. Mm-hmm. I want to call her somebody sciatica. I don't remember what her name is. <laughs> She was Italian, too. She was Italian. And he drives a car. Yes. He goes and yells at people about Anna. And it's just like, yeah, all right. Crystal Donald, you're free now. <laughs> hey. Yes. It's a uh, giant forehead. There's a giant forehead action. It's mayhem. But it does kind of put Philip Seymour Hoffman on the map because I do remember him, though. And I, I remember. I actually remember him in this movie. Yes. Is- and um, he played. The sleaze bag very well. Yeah, the prep school bully. Yeah. Kind of, I find it interesting that he's, it's not that he can't play charismatic good guy characters. He occasionally does, but for whatever reason, he just playing dirtbags and villains and skis balls and egotists. I mean, it's. You said where he's from. I'm from the South Side. I can only play sh- <laughs> the little acting I've done. The only short film I like was in every scene was me burying somebody next to train tracks. <laughs> and just because I saw somebody do that as a kid, oh, man, that happened. <laughs> the way, uh, I don't know if that was a movie. <laughs> Anyways, next movie, please. Next movie. Well, after that, though, because he kind of stands out in that movie, he gets a lot of stuff in the 90s. There's a bunch of stuff to bounce around on in the 90s. Some of it is good. Some of it is not good. Some of it's my boyfriend's back. It's my boyfriend's back, which, you know what's funny is some of his flops that he's in have tons of people in them. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. My boyfriend's back has Matthew McConaughey. I mean, it's crazy how many people are in that movie. And he's in Twister, which I think we should bring up Twister. Uh, He's in The Getaway, which 
is pretty ridiculous. He's in Money for Nothing. Yeah, I've seen all these movies. Yes, but Money for Nothing has Michael Madsen, Benicio Del Toro, Michael Rappaport, James Gandolfini. You know what I'm saying? It's like these weird 90s movies that have these casts of A-list movie stars. First of all, yes, those last four names you rattle off were not A-list movie stars. Uh, Benicio. Not in the 90s. That's what I mean. But like. Michael Madsen yeah, was always. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Okay. B-list movie. Yeah. But, James Gandolfini was A-list TV. And then I don't <laughs> remember who else you said, but like. Uh, Michael Rappaport. And uh, yeah. Come on. Yeah. I know. Okay. My podcast is in stereo. Hey. <laughs> hey. When a man loves a woman. Starring Meg Ryan, and it would be ironic if I said one of the greatest actors of all time, and then Andy I said Andy Garcia, Garcia. <laughs> and then it would be a hilarious joke because Andy Garcia. This is my wife, she drinks a lot. I don't know. You guys want to watch me sing karaoke and ruin a solid fifteen minutes of Black Rain? Here it comes. Get ready. Yeah, you can't unsee that. Have you ever seen When a Man Loves a Woman? Yeah, it's, it's terrible. Uh, yeah. Here's the problem with that: mm-hmm. a Andy Garcia, two. It's fucking Meg Ryan at peak Meg Ryan. I know. You don't go from, cute. I can't sleep in Seattle, and you've got mail. In between that, you go, oh, I'm just going to hide this vodka bottle in the closet. <laughs> Look at me. I'm Meg Ryan. <laughs> Fuck De- fucked Dennis Quaid a bunch. I'm into Andy Garcia for some reason. Yeah, I had babies with him, oh. and I'm hiding booze from my baby. Don't you love this movie? I guess. I guess. He's in a movie called My New Gun. In 1992, did you ever see that? No. No, me neither. Uh, <laughs> don't you worry. And then, as you said, My Boyfriend's Back is a zombie comedy. Bob Balaban directed it. I wanted to like it. He directed Parents. And then he takes this deadpan, dark approach. And he's going to go on, you know, out with his dream girl to the prom and she's a zombie. I, the boyfriend's a zombie, but it has Matthew Fox and Matthew McConaughey and Cloris Leachman. And I mean, Mary Beth Hurt. I will say I watched my boyfriend's back a few times in the 90s. I rented it a couple of times. I kind of like it. I think it's sort of fun and stupid. It's one of the few times where he gets to play a very earnest character, which I liked. He's not necessarily the bad guy. And when he gets to be funny, that's, I think, the underrated thing about Philip Seymour Hoffman. When he gets to be funny and wild and physically hilarious, he's such a force of nature. It has almost like a Chris Farley vibe. The fact that people didn't cast him in more comedies and that really only kind of P.T. understood, even though this guy is very intense and can be very thoughtful, he also could be just super hilarious, even in dark moments. Scotty J crying in Boogie Nights is both Super sad and also super hilarious. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Like he is capable and of doing this just shit. Yelling at Adam Sandler to shut oh, the fuck sh- up. Shut the fuck up. Shut, 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 shut the fuck up. <laughs> like it's threatening, but at the same time, it's hilarious. And we also saw him, you know, jump off a limousine onto a bunch of fucking <laughs> that might have been the outtakes. Yeah. I mean the commercial where he like jumps off the limo onto all the mattresses and then just Plop right on the ground. Yes. It's amazing. It's that amazing. It's actually Philip Seymour Hoffman. He's so, that's what I'm saying. He's so good. He rolls around. He like <laughs> understands his like weird body. He's like, <laughs> it's so crazy. He clearly made sure that his shirt didn't fit. Yeah. He was like, this guy's shirt doesn't fit. And the, <laughs> there's no way. <laughs> oh, man. 
we'll talk about Boogie Nights, but there was a movie called in 1994 called Nobody's Fool that is a Richard Russo novel. And I really like it. It's a Paul Newman movie. He plays a small but cool character where he plays this nice cop, right, who constantly has to try to keep wrangling Paul Newman, who lives in a small town where Bruce Willis is his weird boss and Willis's wife is Melanie Griffith, who Newman openly is like, I'm in love with you and I want to have sex with you. And your husband slash my boss is a piece of shit. And it's kind of a super fun movie. Have you ever seen that? Again, like 30 years ago. I only saw it once. I saw all of these 90s movies. Yeah. Well, I think the big one we should jump to of 90s movies is there's a big element in 1996, as we said, he teams up with his main partner in crime. We can go to any of them. I'm just kind of going by decade with him a little bit. But I did want to bring up that he teams up with Paul Thomas Anderson, one of the great directors of all time, one of the great current directors running around in Hollywood. If you haven't watched PT's movies, uh, you really should. And maybe just start with Heart Eight. He plays, as you said, a smaller role. It stars Philip Baker Hall, John C. Riley, a lot of the usuals, a lot of the... Samuel Jackson. Sam, yes, yes. And Gwyneth Paltrow is the only one who doesn't have three names, and she ruins... She's actually... <laughs> I was going to say, she, I was going to make a joke that she ruins the movie. She's great in this. She's great. She's an actually great like, this actress. Is, yeah. She's like, a lunatic cult leader. Yes. This is a lot closer to, like, her role in uh, Royal Tannenbaums. Yes. It's very understated and dark. I agree. I liked her a lot in it. Yeah. I like Heart 8 a lot. We can talk about maybe our PT sort of ones, but in terms of debuts, I mean, man, is it good. And in a way, it's a little bit of his debut. It's the one that kind of blows him up out of nowhere. He follows it up in 1996. He does a little movie called Twister, which the big thing is I think it's one of his bigger roles in terms of being on screen, having lines. He's in like 50 or 60% of the movie. Yeah, he is one of He's the- one of the um, morons chasing tornadoes. <laughs> Who I don't, I'm not saying tornado chasers are morons. Mm-hmm. I'm saying everyone in this movie is moronic. They are definitely. If I believe correctly, they're trying to beat Carrie Elway's yeah. and throw a garbage can full of cybernetic tennis balls into a tornado. It's those fucking low jacks they put on sharks. (laughs) And they're willing to die for it. Yeah. They're willing to die to see how fast a tornado is. It's a revenge movie for Helen Hunt. Where it's like, (laughs) the tornado kills her dad in the beginning. So she's like, I'm going to fucking kill you. And then she goes chasing after all these tornadoes. Did you kill my dad? Are you that wind? And then like, she's just like, eat my garbage. And then like, we will be able to find out before the tornado knows it's a tornado. <gasps> Finally. So it's like precog. What we've always been wondering, yeah. are tornadoes dangerous? The answer is yes. Yes. They are. Unless you have a belt from Sears <laughs> that you attach to a pole in a ground that like the entire building. Also, spoiler, this is the yeah. ending of fucking Twister. Yes, it is. You're going to waste your time. The building gets eaten by this F5 tornado. This tornado they've been waiting for like her entire life so she can avenge her father. And it literally eats up the entire ground around them, except for some stink pole in the ground. And they are using their belts to hang on. They should be skinless cadavers <laughs> holding onto a belt and carry Elway's. I got to think he's already dead by then, but like he should be showing up going, well, I win. <laughs> also, I watched it again recently and 
it's very fun. It's very fun. Everyone is being at max fun. Bill Paxton is the starring role. You know, yeah, I, I mean, know. it's. I, I, I love Bill Paxton, but we all know my position on fun. <laughs> you hate fun. And fun. it's one of those movies where you find yourself watching it because there's so many charismatic actors in it. But if you really step outside, you're like, this movie is so stupid. It's it insanely is- stupid. It's so stupid. They're like, this movie is so dumb. You know what this movie needs? A Van Hagar song. <laughs> oh, my God. It ended up making an absurd amount of money. Of course. I think it was the fifth highest grossing movie of the entire 1990s. It made like $470 million at the box office. And then it came out at just the right time. I believe it's one of the first DVDs. Yeah. So it then. It's also riding that Michael Crichton Jurassic Park wave. Yeah. And it was before Sphere when everyone's like, Oh, did he only write like seven good books and they made nine movies? The answer is yes. (laughs) I mean, but that's like a lot of writers. I'm not going to dunk on Michael Crichton. He wrote some really great stuff, but he also wrote some stuff that was kind of like, yeah, his character in Twister is named Dustin Davis and he wears a hat. Once again, he makes a mountain out of a molehill all the time. He takes whatever little character he has and is like, I'm the most important character in the entire movie. I'm going to be the most memorable character. I'm going to explode out. There's nothing you can do about it. Freak out Jamie gets (laughs) with breakfast. Yes. I am going to be hilarious and weird and there's nothing you can do about it. And that was what happened on hard eight. And it made once again, one of the best directors in the entire world cast him in a bigger role in 1997's boogie nights which a lot of people might argue is PT's masterpiece. Some people think it is. I think it's amazing. I think it's unstoppably good. It's super fun to watch the first half and the next level depressing to watch the second half. Yeah. No, it's like the first half of this is nostalgia, Mm. trip, fun ride. Everything is crazy. You're going to love this. Yeah, they're doing some stuff. Everybody's had some problems, but guess what? Everything's going to be great. And then... William H. Macy shows up and go, guess what? Last hour was a horror film. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Tom Jane is going to be very terrifying. I don't think so. Yeah, maybe not terrifying. Tom Jane thinks he's terrifying. (laughs) Refuses to put shoes on. Yeah. Also, real fast, because you already said your thoughts on it. I fucking love this movie. Mm. It's not my favorite PT movie. Okay. PT has one of those things where every movie he puts out, that becomes my new favorite movie of his. Ooh, interesting. But... I remember being in high school. I was a freshman and the Oscars. Yeah. I remember being pissed that Boogie Nights didn't win the Oscars. And Hell no yeah. one had seen it. And they're like, that is a porno movie, right? I go, it's not just about porno. <laughs> and in that moment, I realized I was destined not to have any friends for the next two years. <laughs> I am sorry you didn't have more friends in high school. I'm not. I would have been your friend in high school because I also rented it. I worked at Blockbuster. I rented it a bunch of times. It was not just to see Heather Graham naked, although I'm not going to lie. And Julianne Moore was a benefit to high school me. It's something I do like about PT is that he doesn't shy away from sexuality, but he doesn't do it in a way that is exploitive in my mind. It's yeah. not just like, let's have some boobs in this, you know? it. No, he's like, we're going to have an entire movie of tits. Yes. But there's a reason. I was going to tell you a story. Also, PT talked about it. I heard an interesting interview with him, and he grew up in the Valley. And when he was a kid, it oh, was- Oh, yeah. He said he was obsessed with porn. Absolutely, because he was in the Valley in the 70s. So there was so many people, and his dad worked in, I think, video production. So his dad kind of, like, edited porn sometimes, you know? And there was this element where 
it just was around. And so for him, it was both nostalgic and sad. And I think he brought such a great sensibility. And Scotty J for me is one of the great side characters in the history of cinema as the confused gay boom operator who wants to have sex with Mark Wahlberg, but is so just painfully awkward. And it's great. Painfully awkward to the point where it's like, holy shit. But also <laughs> when he shows up with his same car and in the same outfit and everything, it's oh like, oh my God, this is, oh my God, it goes past like shocking and just cringe to horrifying <laughs> levels of just butt clenching embarrassment. I mean, as we said, him crying in the car. Yeah, is just it's amazing. Everything about that scene is amazing. Like, oh, my God. It's like if single white female was like the most harmless person ever. I know it's the dichotomy of him. As we said, he can be alternatingly like super affecting and painful almost to instantly flipping it to become super hilarious all in one moment. I'm trying to think of people who can do that in the way that he did it. And I, I just genuinely, I, I'm, I'm blanking to come up with someone who I think could Eddie do Redmayne. <laughs> oh, I'm Eddie Redmayne. I'm acting by yelling. Yes, we get it, Eddie. That was his uh, guy in the wheelchair, right? I don't want to do that. Cause that's, uh, no, I mean, that, that was what you just did. <laughs> I right? am doing no, 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 no. <laughs> Cut all this out. Cut it all out. Oh, doing a robot voice. Oh, come on. Stephen Hawking would have thought it was funny. I think it's interesting that we all saw it in high school, too. And the yeah. way, and that a lot of those characters are supposed to be kind of right out of high school and the awkwardness and the the exuberance, but the naivety and the not knowing what the hell yeah. you're doing. And like this is exactly like Brian said, like Scotty J is I fucking got that character right away. I was oh, like, yeah. He is so far away from being cool. Mm it's like the ghost world thing where it's like, he's so uncool. He's cool. But then he just crossed back around into being uncool again. It was terrifying. And then Philip Seymour Hoffman's character in that helped me to stop trying. <laughs> the moment I realized if I didn't give a shit about anything and I didn't try, then I couldn't fail Fair. at being cool. So then I just became some sort of different type of weirdo. It's a good life lesson. Yeah. Who just like got obsessed with movies, eventually talked about it so much. Some rando in my class was like, nobody cares. <laughs> and then like 20, whatever years later, here I am with a podcast. Oh man. Every, and, yeah. You know, and everybody's married said- to some guy from Jewel. <laughs> they both worked there. Oh God. Well, you dodged a bullet. Also, everybody's had that moment where they like somebody a lot and then they try and the other person is not into them. And everybody kind of has to go through that moment. Yeah. And for him to just so dynamically pull it off, it's... It was, it was amazing. It's amazing. You know, the funny thing for me, though, is that that was my last long-term relationship. Was you and Boogie Nights? No, no. no. I mean, that, this lasted since freshman year high school. That's true. Just me really liking somebody and then not liking me back, but they just dated me anyways. Hey, that's... Yeah. Hey, look, man. You take affection where you get it. Okay. Exactly. The only regrets <laughs> I have are my frequent flyer miles and the bills they cost me. That's that's good. Moving on with that sentiment. 
Sediment, right? Was that sediment? Rocks. Got pockets <laughs> full of rocks. There are two movies I'm going to bring up in 1998. I have seen neither of them. They are called Montana and Next Stop Wonderland. I've seen both. What do you think? Any hot takes on either of those? Montana mm. is as dumb as it seems. <laughs> I don't remember anything about that fucking movie except for John Ritter. Yes. Yes. And next up, Wonderland. I don't remember anything about it either. I know I watched it because I was in love with Hope Davis. Oh. Like. I mean, Hope Davis is pretty great. Yeah. She was pretty great. Um, oh, I remember happened? watching it. I was like, oh, I don't care. I don't give a shit. I don't give a shit. And I just kept watching it anyway. So I was like, oh, there she is. Hey, it's Hope Davis. Oh, look, it's Matt Dillon. Oh, look who it is. Look who it is. Also, this Matt, fucking sleazeball. Hilariously, in that same year, Matt Dillon would be in, like, the highest grossing movie in the world and, like, the highest grossing rated R movie in, like, the history of time up to that point in There's Something About Mary. So it's the height of Matt Dillon-ness. Yeah. But this is not the Matt Dillon episode because the next thing he did in 1998 would be, for a lot of people, I think even a wider audience, the movie that endeared him because it is such a cult classic. Me and my idiot friends would quote it to each other in high school before memes existed. That's what people did. It is a movie called The Big Lebowski. We appreciate your discretion on this, dude. He plays Brant, the other Lebowski's man, I guess you would say. Yeah, manservant. He is hilariously stick up his ass. He is trying to be cool, but he is a manservant. He is... Once again, just jumps out. Other people might play that role and you don't remember a damn thing, but Philip Seymour Hoffman as the passive aggressive manservant branch. Constantly on the brink of a heart attack <laughs> from trying to be nonchalant. And then he's like, he's going to repeat it. Her life is in your hand, dude. <laughs> Her life is in your hand, dude. The, uh, the weird him laughing kind of the oh yeah yeah that's amazing he's he actually does the pyramid fingers while he's doing it too he's just like i'm showing nick a picture <laughs> yeah exactly yeah <laughs> jesus christ i know this is a he's that dog from the meme where it's like the house is on fire he's like this is fine <laughs> this is fine him doing the fake laugh him having the bad 90s corporate haircut yeah him with the stupid glasses that are too small for his face i mean it's Perfect. It's perfect. It's maybe not one we have to go super deep dive on because it's, it's the Big Lebowski. It's the Big Lebowski. Yeah. If you haven't seen the Big Lebowski, you should see it. Even if you don't enjoy it, you should just see it so that when people are talking about the Big Lebowski, you don't seem like you grew up in a cave. It's, I would say, of the Coen Brothers movies, maybe their biggest cult hit in terms of its longevity and people having Big Lebowski con and people just uh, wearing T-shirts and having mugs that say the dude abides. It is an iconic cinema piece. I think it's very fun and very funny. I don't think it's the best Coen brothers movie, but it's definitely one of the more fun neo-noirs ever made. And he's great at it. After that, in the same year in 1998, he starts heating up. He then in 1998 plays one of the more punishingly weird characters I've ever seen in cinema. He is in the Todd salons happiness. What's your take on happiness, Nick? No, thanks. (laughs) Sometimes I love Todd Salons. Sometimes yeah. he is the funniest director in the history of the world. And sometimes he makes me want to like get a cheese grater and cut off my skin with it oh. just so I could not watch this fucking movie ever again. The fact that one of his sex scenes, he put a black square over it because they were going to give him an X rating. Yeah. So he just is like, here you go. <laughs> he put a black square, <laughs> which they were like, I guess that's fine. That's fine. You want to ruin your movie? But in a way, though, it's like 
You know what's happening. Yeah. But the sound, he didn't put a black bar over. <laughs> it's literally the noise of the fucking Always Sunny dudes are talking about. Like, <laughs> Dennis's sex tape. Man, Todd Salons is the forerunner in a lot of ways to like Tim and Eric and oh, yeah. a lot of the more completely insane, absurdist comedies. But and also he made Wiener Dog a few years ago. Yeah. And it was charming. Yes. Even in Happiness, there's charming stuff. Yeah. It then is surrounded by just sheer devastating awkwardness, as well as really funny mayhem. I haven't seen Happiness since probably two. No, it was one viewing. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. One and done. It's one of those ones where I was like, "Yeah, Phil Schiller was great in it." I'm not going to watch that again, no. though. God, Him no. as that weird neurotic character who just cannot even live his own life because of his neurosis. For some reason, those characters upset me more than any other ones because it's just this ball of awkwardness. It's not fun like Scotty J. You know what I'm saying? No, Scotty J was a fucking idiot mm-hmm. and he felt a lot of pain from it. <laughs> but like you said about the shirt, all of his shirts being too small, mm-hmm. Scotty J was brave as shit. Yeah. And he took all the chances. Yes. He put everything in the line. He just straight up walks up to fucking Dirk and be like, can I kiss you now? He's like, no, no, what are you <laughs> no. doing? We're not, <laughs> what? We are not these people. And then you have. His character in this and his character in The Big Lebowski, where it's just like teeth chattering to death. Uh, yes. Over just like the fear of life. <laughs> That's yes. Lovely. Lovely, dude. In 1998, he is in one of the crimes of Against Humanity, a film called Patch Adams. Any thoughts, son? I will watch Avatar before I watch Patch Adams. <laughs> Never seen it. Could Brian, not give a Brian's shit. showing me his Patch Adams tattoo. Yeah. That's not true. I'm not even going to make that joke. That's not even funny. My Patch Adams <laughs> Get him a microphone, goddammit. I mean, get him even, a mixing board. Even Robin Williams was like ashamed of Patch Adams. He's in it. He's in the Amy Mann video, Save Me. Little hint as to a movie that is coming. He's in a 1999 movie called Flawless. An ironic name. <laughs> Just keep going. That's the best we can do. And 1999. (laughs) He then gets a bigger role with the big dog director. A lot of the A-list actors, they do tie their little ship to a much bigger ship that is going in a direction. And it turns them as well into a big ship. That's a whole metaphor that doesn't make sense. But he is in 1999. He is Phil Parma in Magnolia. He plays kind of the counterpart to Jason Robards and Jason Robards' last role. It's a ton of amazing acting pieces. I don't think it's my favorite PT. It's definitely maybe PT's saddest movie. Without a doubt. Because it's also about his dad, PT's actual dad dying. Yeah. How weird he felt about it. Also, one of my favorite things about Magnolia, and before I hear Nick's take, because I really want to, if you've never heard Paul F. Tompkins tell his story about the time that he table read for his little character in Magnolia. And he came to PT's house and Tom Cruise is there and he goes, hi, I'm Tom. And he said, yeah, everyone in the world knows who you are. (laughs) Yeah. And Tom did not laugh, but (laughs) you should do it. I think it's his second stand-up special uh, that's on Spotify and you should listen to it. It's amazing. It's a good side piece. What is your take on Magnolia, Nick? Magnolia is, the entire second half of Boogie Nights mm. stretched out over three gruesome hours. <laughs> it is a horror film about human emotions. Yeah. 
and just breaking mentality of the human condition and suffering. It's like every character in this fucking thing is Job. Oh, that's a very good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah, it's great though. It's really good. And everyone acts their balls off mm-hmm. or their or their ovaries off. It's phenomenal. But I can watch it once every seven years and it takes me about a week to watch it. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't have that watchability of the first half of Boogie Nights or the most of Heart Eight, but it is amazing. And it truly even mentions in a way people are going through biblical level shit. Like the ending. Yeah. And the Amy Man score is very good. Yeah. But very like. Elliot Smith, and then just under that, if you want to depress the shit out of yourself with late '90s music, it is this Amy is the, Man. This like, is the 9/11 of <laughs> like late '90s sad bastard music. This movie definitely needed in this last like 40 minutes of it, Alfred Molina in his speedos again. Oh yeah, blowing shit up, killing Tom <laughs> Jane. Like <laughs> at least that's yeah. Yes. Like at least give us something. Oh, like, so true. And I think PT even took that to heart. I don't think any of PT's movies after that, he worked out at least a chunk of his dad dying yeah. in this movie. And his movies would never be that depressing again. No, he, he got over it. Like, he even, like, because that's the thing, is Paul Thomas Anderson absolutely loves goofy fucking comedy. And we will talk about another one that he made. Yes, yes. but, like, his favorite TV shows are, like, Workaholic, South Park, mm-hmm. and he's in... Documentary now, if you haven't seen the one with test pattern, he's the voice of the guy interviewing everybody for the documentary because he's married to Maya Rudolph and Maya Rudolph played um, the member of the band. And weirdly enough, he talked about when his dad was dying and he basically had to take care of him in the hospital and his dad would be like in and out of consciousness. So he would just be in this hospital and the hospital room had a VCR and he would just bring like Happy Gilmore and Billy Madison and all of these recorded. He would record Saturday Night Live and he would just watch that yeah. over and over and Wayne's World, I guess. And it's interesting that then we'll talk about a movie he makes where he brings that. But it's interesting that he's a big SNL fan. It's funny that he then married a person who was one of the great yeah. performers on SNL. But I mean – they got four That's the kids. dream. <laughs> yeah. Yes, they do. And they seem to like each other, unlike some other married people, you know? Yeah. But also, <laughs> the crazy bit is, because Philip Seymour Hoffman doesn't make it a Phantom Thread, mm-hmm. but oh, man, he made cool. Phantom Thread because he had a crazy high fever, and Maya Rudolph was taking care of him, and he's never felt such affection from anyone other than his mom and just the complete vulnerability of her just like, I just love the idea of PT sitting there in bed, just like dying and just be like, she's the greatest person ever. <laughs> she could totally kill me right now. <laughs> that is true. Hopefully my Rudolph does not murder PT. I think that's, uh, I think we don't but worry about that. If it happens, if it happens, we all should have seen it coming. He probably deserved it. In 1999, also same year. I mean, he starts to really crush it. Banging him out. He then is in, the Anthony Mangella film that I saw in the theater and really dug the living shit out of. Also, he works with Anthony Mangella a couple times. Yeah, He is Freddie Miles in The Talented Mr. Ripley. If you want to see a nasty, weird, psychedelic, violent movie, 
You should read Graham Greene's books because they're way ahead of their time. And also you should see The Talented Mr. Ripley because, as I said, at the time it was a bunch of young actors who all went on to be A-list movie stars or at least, well, all, yeah, Gwyneth Paltrow, Matt Damon, Jude, Jude Law, Law, and Philip Seymour Hoffman are kind of the four principal characters. And it's kind of a ensemble movie. And if you've never seen it. it and then it, slowly the ensemble disappears. Yes. Because one of them is nuts. Spoiler alert. The scene where Philip Seymour Hoffman kills Jude Law is I think my mouth actually like was open for a solid 30 seconds in the movie theater. The way that it happens where he hits him with the oar and Jude Law looks at him like, what, what, what? And but then the blood starts to spurt out of his head and then he hits him again and again. And you watch it. You just have to sit there and watch it. And you see Jude Law's like confused face. When he's getting beaten to death with an oar and then Matt Damon takes over his life. It's the weirdest fucking like, but also harrowing and interesting. And you're kind of like, fuck Jude Law. Fuck that guy. But also you're a psychopath. Yeah. Fuck and Matt Damon. Yes. <laughs> it's crazy. There's a whole series of films in the 90s where people just wanted to be Jude Law. Yes, that is very true. Yeah. Or actually took over his personality because he let them for money. Yeah. Also, I have to bring this up. When Ben Affleck hosted SNL right around that time, there was a mango sketch in which Ben Affleck was obsessed with mango. And then mango was like, who are you? And he was like, I'm Ben Affleck. Ben Hooflick? And he called him on the phone and he was like, actually, I'm Matt Damon. And mango was like, ooh, Matt Damon. And he was like, yeah, I would like to go on a date with you. And he's like, all right, Matt Damon. And then they cut and Ben Affleck is standing in front of the mirror like the talented Mr. Ripley. And he puts the fucking glasses on and he's like. I'm a short moron. I'm a short moron. I man, I I couldn't believe. That's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. What's your take on the talented Mr. Ripley, Nick? Fantastic film. I think so. Anthony, yeah. yeah, it's a very well directed. Everyone in there is on the best point of their like acting careers. You know, it's just a shame that Matt Damon's in it. <laughs> your beef with Matt Damon. I like Matt Damon and some stuff. I wouldn't say he's my absolute favorite actor of all time, but I, I do kind of enjoy some Matt Damon sometimes. I like the Bourne movies. I like the Oceans movies. I don't have any strong hatred for Matt Damon as you do. Do you? Like, <laughs> I, I realize it. I'm okay with it. That's okay. That's why we're we're friends. We have different opinions. Yeah. State and Maine in 2000. Did you ever see that? Yeah, I went through a David Mamet phase. I'm not proud of it. Yeah, it gets a little right wing. All those movies do. Yeah, but this yeah. one particularly. Yeah. I, watch, I, I don't remember any of it. Eventually, I just started like walking around. I watched this movie the way Bob Katovich watched all of his movies where he puts it on and just, like walks around all day. <laughs> Unless it's a horror movie in which he runs away into the woods. Yes, but once he gets to the woods, he realizes it's scary and he has to come back and watch the movie. <laughs> in 2000, he also makes a movie that is another one of his kind of breakout as an even bigger star to another audience in a big hit movie. Vulture had a list of their listing all 50 movies that Philip Seymour Hoffman made. It surprised me because they put the number one movie in terms of his performances and I think just overhanging movie. He is in the Cameron Crowe, possibly masterpiece. He is in Almost Famous as I'd less, call it a masterpiece. It's definitely for Cameron Crowe. I think yeah. his best movie. It's his most iconic. It's the one I remember. It's the one I enjoy the most. And Still randomly like to get high and just yell at people randomly and just go, your aura is purple. And then I walk away. <laughs> this is what happens for people who aren't cool. Yeah. He plays Lester Banks. 
in Almost Famous as the kind of uncool rock and roll nerd guru to the guy from Gone Girl. Patrick Fugit. Patrick Fugit. He once again stands out in a big time cast of big time standouts. And He's the most empathetic character in there besides the kid. He is. They're never going to like you. You're never yeah. going to be cool. And that's okay. And it's like an, a reverse of the Scotty J character of somebody who's already gone through the fire and already kind of knows the deal about cool and popularity and rock and roll and music. And he's just such a, as you said, an empathetic, beautiful character. Yeah. Do you like Almost Famous? For the longest time, Almost Famous was my favorite movie. That's really good. I was a writer when I was young, Mm -hmm. uh, still am. I was like, yeah, that's it. I'm going to become a journalist. Eventually, when I went back to school after failing out of Columbia College, (laughs) and by failing out, I mean they're like, you don't have any money. Fuck off. (laughs) That uh, is what it is. Yeah, that's what it is. When I finally went back to college, I went for journalism, and that was the same time all the newspapers were, like, falling apart. And I was talking to my journalism teacher. I was like, yeah, I was like, it's like I'm going to school for VCR repair. But... (laughs) It was directly inspired by uh, Almost Famous. I just, I love that fucking movie. Philip Seymour Hoffman's amazing in it. The moment he started talking shit about Jim Morrison being a fake poet, <laughs> I was like, I love this asshole. And then he's like, Iggy Pop! And the DJ's oh. like, it's a little early for that. He goes, not around here. And then fucking puts on Search and Destroy. My God. I know. Oh, what Lester Banks would think of. 2021, you know, the, the whole world got lame and man, is that movie good? And so many good people in it, such a Zoe Deschanel and Kate Hudson and uh, Jason Lee, Billy Crudup, Billy Crudup, Billy Crudup is not good in anything unless it takes place in the past. With the exception of, I did like him as the sleazy lawyer. Well, I guess it is in the past for spotlight. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So Yes, you're totally right. But it has this obvious Francis McDormand. I mean, it's Kate Hudson. Yeah. uh, Yes. Don't do drugs. (laughs) When when Francis McDormand pulls up the cover of Simon Garfunkel bookends and says, look at their eyes. They're on drugs. They're on drugs. I was like, I immediately said to myself, I have to buy this album. And I did. And I love bookends, although it is super sad and still bums me out. But I listened to it a lot in high school. Because you're sad in high school. That's the whole point. And if you're not sad in high school, you're sad as a middle-aged person. That's just how it works. Sucker! <laughs> How's it going being a cop? All right. In 2002, he's in Love, Liza. And he takes... I and a friend, who I shall not name because what we did was very stupid, decided to watch that after taking an Adderall each and then clam baking a bathroom. Oh, boy. This was one of the worst movie-watching experiences of my life. <laughs> that sounds right, Never though. finished it. I was just like, we got to watch anything else. I am way too focused and way too stoned to watch this movie. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It's one of the few ones I've never seen. The cover of it, of him sad in a car. I saw it at Blockbuster, and I kept seeing it and saying to myself, that movie's going to depress the shit out of me. I don't want to watch that. Yeah, that came, that came out while I was working there. Yeah. I just remember I would walk past it and I'm like, not you again. No, no, thank you. No, thank you. In 2002, he teams back up with PT. Big surprise. PT, after Magnolia, says to himself, you know what? I'm going to make my Adam Sandler movie. I'm going to do it. It's still 
in my mind, one of the more underrated PTs. It is such a wild idea for an Adam Sandler movie. It is touching. It is interesting. It is extremely funny in the darkest, weirdest fucking ways. It is Punch Drunk Love. He plays Dean Trumbull, a guy who sort of runs a sex phone mafia slash mattress business and then tries to rip off Adam Sandler. And Adam Sandler, as he begins to become a congruent personality because of his new girlfriend based on amazing actress Emma Oscar Witter. Why can't I think of her name right now? Emily Watson, excuse me. And uh, he passive aggressively defeats yep. uh, <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman. <laughs> what, do, what do you think? What do you think of Punch Drunk Love? I've bought this movie three different times. <laughs> I adore this movie. You and I tried to watch it a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. We were too high. <laughs> but the first half hour of this movie, directing wise, I think you could teach an entire semester. On. Agreed. It's not the usual long takes. It's not the usual PT stuff that he did before this. It's just a superbly made manic episode of a movie. Mm. And then, like you said, once Emily Watson comes into his life, the movie switches. Mm -hmm. And it stops being how Barry perceives his life as this, this fucking nonstop panic attack. And it slowly turns into a different movie where he starts to breathe. Yes. He's the hero. It's, he's the hero. Essentially, this is like Superman. Mm-hmm. And so he's wearing the fucking cape and the shit and the suit the whole time. It's true. And um, I think Philip Seymour Hoffman is the best Lex Luthor we've oh ever my had. God, so good. And uh, no offense to Gene Hackman. I love you, Gene. Yeah, Come on the show. True. That's true. I have a, I'll show you my tattoo of you <laughs> on my knee. But <laughs> Punch Drunk Love, perfect movie. Yes. Yes, at Columbia, in one of my final screenwriting classes, you had to, as basically kind of like a thesis, you had to pick one movie and just fully explain deeply the psychology of it and pick one that had a complex psychology and why it made the writing so good. And I chose Punch Drunk Love because it is a Jungian script versus, say, a Freudian script in which a lot of of movies work in a Freudian way where – Someone has had things happen to them in the past that has created their personality and then conflict happens and their personality because of their past allows them for whatever reason to be able to accomplish the goal. In a Jungian one, the person is trapped, surrounded by people who are not quote unquote congruent with them. Like say he has a group of sisters who call him gay boy and constantly make fun of him for all of the things he's good at. All of his tenacity and ingenuity and curiosity and super strength. They literally give him shit about all of it nonstop and tell him that he should go to therapy and he is wrong. He is a piece of shit. Call they, the R word constantly. Yeah, they call him and gay. Yes, gay boy and sh- piece of shit and Artard, and then he finds someone who says, no, all of those things are good. You are awesome. What you're doing is awesome. And his life begins to turn around and he becomes a character who is able to pull himself out of problems he would have never been able to pull himself out of. Yeah. And it's amazing. And also the fact that then PT, after Magnolia, after his dad died, after the sad shit, he gets his boy, Philip Seymour Hoffman, to come in with his sort of you know, teenage icon of Adam Sandler and they make a movie that is about reclaiming your own life from your own sadness, from your own neurosis, from your own surroundings. It's such a, man, is it good? Man, is it good? 
He follows it up in 2002 with a movie called Let's Remake a Movie That Was Already Good, directed by Brett Ratner, Red Dragon. I'm the Red Dragon. That's what how Ralph Fiennes talks. Yeah. <laughs> Ralph Fiennes set me on fire. I still wouldn't be afraid of him. <laughs> yeah. And also the idea that a guy like Ray Fiennes like, works as like a delivery man. I was like, you look like a weird, handsome English giant. Yeah. Like they would just give you better jobs just based on how you look. <laughs> just like. Just watch Manhunter. Yes, just watch Manhunter. However, I will he's, say he's good in it. He's once again he plays yeah. this weird, seedy blogger who's trying to you know worm his way in, and it gets him killed. Freddie Lowndes, I believe. Yeah, and uh, yes, it's one of those ones Probably where like Freddie Burns. I don't know. You are, you're nailing it. <laughs> Brian, take over for me. <laughs> After that, he's in Owning Mahoney. Have you seen that? think so. I have no, no idea. Yeah, I don't care. I've never heard of it again. 2003, though, he gets back with his boy, Anthony Mangella. It is a movie my mom and my grandma revere. They watch it. If they don't know what to watch, they put it back on. I will admit he's amazing in it. I think it's kind of a goofy movie. Even though I like Anthony Mangella a lot, I still think this movie is kind of goofy as fuck. It is a movie called Cold Mountain about the Civil War and Jude Law talking... <laughs> in an accent that I'm supposed to take seriously. Why, I do declare the Civil War was a most trying time for me. And you're like, this guy is talking like Foghorn Leghorn. I'm supposed to take this seriously. He plays a weird preacher in it. What do you think of Cold Mountain? I've never seen it. I don't like Renee <gasps> Zellweger. <laughs> she doesn't up. like you. I've seen her tweets. She's tweeted. I know, we have beef. I'm going to fuck that Nick up. I think it was one she said. Yeah. At Sleepy Menthol. I was like, uh oh. And then it was just a bunch of knife emojis. Now on Twitter, my handle is uh, String Theory 69. <laughs> 420. No, that would be absurd. <laughs> He's good at it. And then the movie Nick really wanted to talk about in 2004, Brian Tufts as well. They said, How would you like to make some money, Philip Seymour Hoffman? Yeah. And he said, How much money? And they said, Enough to be in a long came Polly. And they showed him a check that had a bunch of zeros on it. And he said, you know what? I would like to have a townhouse in Greenwich Village. I will take your movie, John Hamburg. Whoever that is. The fuck is that? I don't know. He directed it. He wrote it. The movie has a ton of people. It is bananas. Ben Stiller, Jennifer Aniston, Deborah Messing, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Alec Baldwin, Hank Azaria, Brian Brown. I mean, Brian Brown, Brian Brown, cocktail, FX cocktail cuisine, Brian Brown, Judah Friedlander, Kevin Hart. I mean, these are just comedians. I know. But now that's a lot of A-list movie stars, not Brian Brown, but and Judah Friedlander. <laughs> that is also true. But that is a lot of big time people. I saw it. I don't remember a goddamn thing other than the sharding scene and the scene where they play pickup basketball. That's because they have Philip that Seymour Hoffman. That movie is exactly seven minutes long in my mind. <laughs> I remember Philip Seymour Hoffman in it. I kind of remember Alec Baldwin being his dick boss. I kind of remember him and Jennifer Aniston having zero chemistry. Oh, my God. No, nothing. Nothing at all. Yes. And kissing as though they're pressing their lips against a piece of cardboard. <laughs> he had more chemistry with Philip Seymour Hoffman's chest. Yes. He had more chemistry with... Owen Wilson in Zoolander. 
than he did. Whoa, 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 whoa. slow down. (laughs) Don't try to take away from the bromance romance that is uh, Zoolander and Derek. Uh, Hansel. Hansel, whatever. I don't care what the fucking names are. He's very hot right now. Wow. Wow. So he plays an awesome little character in the 2005 Kids in the Hall movie, Strangers with Candy. It's not Kids in the Hall. Oh, no. uh, Sorry. Strangers with Candy is... uh, TV show. Sedaris. Yes. Yeah. Amy Sedaris. I'm sorry. I said Kids in the Hall. The Amy Sedaris Comedy Central television show, Strangers, which is one of the great early Comedy Central original shows that had Stephen Colbert, which still has one of my favorite lines from any sitcom where Stephen Colbert plays her insane teacher. And at one point she says, my dad died. And he's like, that's great. He says, you know what? Everybody dies someday except my dad. And then he looks at the ceiling and goes, you hear that, God? My dad will never die. (laughs) If you've never seen Strangers with Candy, you should do yourself a favor. You should watch some episodes, find them wherever they are. And uh, what do you think of the movie, Nick? What do you think of Strangers with Candy, the movie? I love everything Amy Sears Mm -hmm. does. It doesn't matter if it's good or bad. If she's in it, I go, oh, I love this. (laughs) Like some sort of cult member. (laughs) So uh, to answer your question, I loved it. I think it's great. It's great. I think it's one of those ones that I just, even right now I'm realizing I want to watch it again. Yeah. You I should. will watch Jerry do anything. Absolutely. Her as a 40 year old former sex worker and criminal who is trying to turn her life around and get her degree and actually goes back to actual high school. It's very solid. So fucking much. And very weird. Strangely in the exact same year, in 2005, the one we have to talk about because For him, he goes from being this well-respected character actor, this well-respected, I guess you'd say kind of B-list movie star. A lot of people like him. A lot of people know him. But he is in the Bennett Miller Capote, where he plays Truman Capote. Spoiler alert, he wins Best Actor. Yeah. He deserved it. He's amazing in it. What do you think of Capote, Nick? I saw it in theaters. I was way too stoned. It blew me the fuck away. Mm Mm-hmm. It was past the point of looking away. It was like I was hanging on every fucking word he said. Yeah. As fucking amazing as this one is, Mm -hmm. is as how terrible the Sandra Bullock version of this is in cold blood. (laughs) It's like comparing Boogie Nights to what's that movie? The full movie, The Blind 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 Side? Yeah. (laughs) They're both about sex work. I recently, I had to stop in a hotel and like the hotel TV's, you know, suck. You just get random cable and you have to just kind of take whatever of the like 50 channels they give you. And Capote was on, I think like just HBO. And I was so grateful because it's one of those movies for me, like Goodfellas or Jurassic Park or something where if it catches me, if I start watching it, I can't stop watching it. I just have to watch the entire thing. It's riveting. Him as a character, as a protagonist, where he is Truman Capote, he does an interesting affectation. He portrays himself as smaller than he is, but he also is this weird egotist who has to get these things for himself and his career. And the way they portray that, that's so simple and cool. Also, his boy Dan Futterman wrote it. And Clifton Collins... Allie Nicholson, Chris Carter or Chris Cooper, excuse me, like Chris Cooper is awesome in it. I mean, it's such a wild, interesting movie. And normally I hate 
a lot of bio movies that come out of Hollywood are so saccharine and so dumb and so just trying to, what are we going to call this song? I don't know, Johnny Cash, but you better walk the line. Walk the line. Well, maybe I'll write a hit song out of that. You know, it's like, it's stupid. And this actually took an interesting edge to the life of Truman Capote and the way Philip Seymour Hoffman played him was just so transcendent and interesting and no one else could have pulled it off. No. I would say that. Literally others have tried and it was a fucking clusterfuck. Yes. No one else has been talented enough to pull off that kind of movie. Philip Seymour Hoffman was one of the greatest actors of all time. Ab-so-fucking-lutely. I don't think we even have to disagree or like we even have to like really talk about it. Do you have any other takes on Capote? Just because it's the Oscar one. He wins Best Actor. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I remember like more of this movie than movies I've watched in the last like week. True. If you've never seen his Oscar speech, I highly recommend it. It's actually very kind of heartfelt and cool. And he like thanks his mom for like raising him and for like basically forcing him to be an actor. <laughs> At one point he thanks Ben Stiller <laughs> for the paycheck so that he could afford to go make this little independent film. That's, that's why I love the guy, man. Just kind yeah. of, that was the weird thing. As I said, that he just supposedly was this super interesting and complex, but always very affable to as many people as he could be. Never got a rep for being a weird dude or a jerk, but occasionally a sad guy, which is interesting. 2006, they come back to him. I don't know if this is just a paycheck because this is a big jump into A-list movie stardom. And he plays the fucking mega bad guy. He plays Owen Davadavian. Da, 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 I don't remember. I don't remember how they pronounce it. But ding, 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 ding. They have the Limp Biscuit Mission Impossible fucking. Uh, but that was the second one. <laughs> they brought it back. It is Mission Impossible three. It's the first big J.J. Abrams movie, and. Uh, he crushes it as the bad guy. What do you think of Mission Impossible 3, Nick? I've only watched his scenes on YouTube. I've never fucking seen it. <laughs> oh, wow. I, you and I have very different opinions on Brian De Palma, mm. so I did not like Mission Impossible. That's fair. I watched part of Mission Impossible 2, and I was like, oh, God, John Woo, stop it. And oh, yeah, by the time this rolled around, I was like, I love this motherfucker, Yeah, but I can't do it. So I just waited until, like, all the clips were somewhere. I was like, I'll just watch all of his scenes. Fantastic. He's fucking terrifying. In Dude, this. I'm saying, and interestingly, always Ethan Hunt, the Tom Cruise character is kind of the underdog, but the sheer level of madness that Philip Seymour Hoffman brings to this automatically makes Ethan Hunt the underdog. And it's so wild because it's Tom Cruise. You're like, of course he's going to win. But in Hi, this, I'm Tom. Yeah, <laughs> of course you are. Everyone knows that. The fact that in this one, for just a brief moment, I suspended my disbelief and Philip Seymour Hoffman was going so crazy at it and was coming up with these devious plans. I was like, I don't know if Tom Cruise is going to win. Like, <laughs> I think he might die. It's like that time you place all your money on the admirals. <laughs> the generals? The generals, yeah. <laughs> Yes. They were due for a win. <laughs> yes. Do not bet against the Harlem Globetrotters or Tom Brady. Um, I like the original Mission Impossible. Super producer Brian Taps is telling me three is his favorite. I do think it is amazing. I like five a lot. I like the ones where McQuarrie starts to take over and they get kind of more psycho. But 
three has a place because it's in the mid 2000s. It's from an era. And Philip Seymour Hoffman playing a big budget action movie bad guy. I don't think it would ever happen again. It's something else. Things keep getting crazier. Normally we skip over stuff, but this is also part of this dude's career. It's hard to skip over a certain segment of this. There's not too many more movies, but I think we have to kind of talk about some of these. Before the Devil Knows You're Dead is, in my mind, one of those movies that is extremely underrated. It's A City Lumet. It's one of his last movies, and I think maybe his last good one. The movie should have been a fucking blockbuster. Yeah, it should have been. It kind of got shelved. It kind of got released, and it was a true kind of 70s nasty crime drama. Him, Ethan Hawke, Albert Finney. Marissa Tomei. Oh, man, yeah, Marissa Tomei. Michael Shannon. I mean, it's a wild-ass movie, and if you've never seen it, it's a classic crime drama. It's very violent. It's very insane. It's about the Irish mob. Do you like Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, Nick? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a great fucking movie. I This is the thing. It's like, it's Philip Seymour Hoffman, who I love, and then, you know, I really enjoy Marissa Tomei, and then... I grew up watching all these Linkletter movies, so it's like, oh, he's going to play against Ethan Hawke, and it's like, Philip Seymour Hoffman is so good, Ethan Hawke had to bring his shit better than he usually does. You get two Ethan Hawks. You either get Gattaca, or you get him going, oh, my dad, and it's just like, (laughs) there's no in-between. No, that's true. So this was definitely Gattaca-level Ethan Hawke, because you're going against Truman fucking Capote. Yes. It's like, yes, it's the Truman Capote training day. Yeah. It's pretty nuts. We have to skim over a lot of these crazy movies because it's just going to get super boring if we don't. But he's in Savages, which he got nominated for a Golden Globe for. Him and Laura Linney trying to take care of their dying dad. It's kind of funny. It's very sad. I didn't see it. Okay. Charlie Wilson's War, once again, gets nominated for Best Supporting Actor. At the time, I thought it was a very fun movie. Now it ages poorly. Yeah. I <laughs> it's I never saw the whole thing. I don't like Aaron Sorkin. I don't like Mike Nichols. I don't like Julia Roberts or Tom Hanks. <gasps> so I didn't, You don't like Tom Hanks? I'm kidding. What kind of nightmare person? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know. Okay. I got nothing against. The only person from that I really don't like is Aaron Sorkin. That's fair. I really enjoy all of Philip Seymour Hoffman's scenes. Agreed. He just shows up. He looks like he's doing a bit. Yes. Everyone looks like they're doing a bit in that movie. But he does his bit where it's like believable and fun. Yes. Because he's Philip Seymour Hoffman. And then everyone else is like, oh, blah, blah, blah. Hey, I don't know why they're that. Jerry Seinfeld, but like, you know. <laughs> what are you going to do about the war in Afghanistan? Yeah. If you don't know the plot of that movie, they basically are like, we should help out the Afghanis fighting the Russians in 1980s Afghanistan, and we should help the Mujahideen so they can beat back the Russians. Uh, Unfortunately, one of the leaders of the Mujahideen was this dude named Osama bin Laden, and the CIA training him to be really good at, uh, oh, I don't know, next-level guerrilla warfare. It didn't turn out so good. And as Super Producer Brian Tepps just brought up, that it's just kind of that element that even in Charlie Wilson's war and in tons of stuff, Philip Seymour Hoffman is just always a standout, no matter how much the movie is dumb. After that, in 2008, he works with Charlie Kaufman in one of the weirdest and yet strangely haunting movies that I've ever seen in my entire life. It is called Synecdoche, New York. Not Schenectady, Synecdoche. And even to describe that movie is difficult, but it is massively affecting. I cried several times when I saw it. I laughed Belly laughed several times when I saw it. I still couldn't all the way tell you what it's about. 
It's about people's lives and them slowly deconstructing from a dimensional level. What do you think, Nick? It's so uncomfortable. <laughs> I love this movie. It's great, but like, like fuck. Mm. Just every other like 10 minutes, I'm just like, ugh. It doesn't stop. It's, it does uh, It's unrelenting. It's the most Charlie Coffin movie ever fucking made. Yes. And I mean that as a compliment and as a criticism. Yes. The part where Tom Noonan comes out, he's been following him the entire time, and then Tom Noonan comes out and is like, I've been following you for a role. I'm going to play you. Yeah. Don't worry. It's nothing creepy. And he's like, here, watch. And then he just behaves exactly like him, but he doesn't look anything like him, but he's doing all of his mannerisms. Yeah. I could not believe what I was seeing. So shout out to Tom Noonan. Absolutely. That was like seeing the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park in terms of things I've seen on screen blowing my mind. But what the fuck was that? <laughs> what the fuck is going on? It was he the one with the German daughter who dies, who he never knew, but she's dying of cancer. And then he goes to visit her while she's dying and she's yelling at him in German. I was pretty young when I saw it in the theater. I mean, I've like, never been young. I was like 23. I went and saw it by myself at the Sin Arts in Evanston. And I think I got very drunk after I saw that movie. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I buy that. I just could. There's a, there's a few of his movies where afterwards, like, I need a fuck like even when I didn't smoke, I was like finished one of his movies like I need a cigarette yeah, and a shot. Yeah, yeah. Unless Spike Jones is involved, it's and even then, it's still Spike Jones bringing a lightness to his stuff. But otherwise, man, who boy, who boys? That's a powerful ass shit. I'm sad. I will never write at a level as this guy, but also at the same time. I am okay with it. That is fair. That is yeah. fair. Maybe we'll do a Charlie Kaufman episode. It'll be short, but it's worth it'll, it. It'll be the regular time length. <laughs> Probably it'll just be will. like a lot of like, it'll just be an audio essay. Yes. It, yeah, it really will. And I mean, if you've never seen any of Charlie Kaufman's movies, you should watch all of them. You should watch all of them. Yeah, get off your Amish farm. Yeah. Yeah. That one's a little, um, but definitely Synecdoche should be in the, the watch list. After that, he gets... Maybe his next acclaimed role where he's nominated again. He plays Father Brendan Flynn in Doubt, in which he is accused of molesting children as a Catholic priest. You don't know if it's real or not. It's interesting. It's based on a stage play. It's uh, John Patrick Shanley, the famous playwright, who also wrote Congo. <laughs> well, I guess they're shade. Because <laughs> I love the story about John Patrick Stanley writing Congo, where they gave him the book. They paid him something like $300,000 to write it. He read the book, said, I don't like that. And they just wrote an insane script about dangerous gorillas and gave it to them. And they're like, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> and then they made it. it. had nothing to do with the book. <laughs> and it's also insane. He literally wrote it as a joke. He's like, here's a stupid popcorn movie. Oh, you want to pay me $300? Here, I'm literally going to write the stupidest thing I can think of. They'll never make this. There's gorillas getting chopped in half with lasers by one of the Ghostbusters. They'll never make this. Hollywood loved it. It's like when Warrant, as the band, basically the studio came to them and they were like, no one likes any of your songs. We need you guys to write a radio hit. So the guy from Warrant like, thought of the stupidest song he could write. And he wrote Cherry Pie, right? As like a making fun of hair rock. He was like, here's the fucking, st here you go. How about this stupid song? She's my cherry pie, right? And guess what? 
All the rednecks loved it, and it was their biggest hit, and they have to perform it every time they tour. Be Thank careful. God for COVID, then. Yeah, be careful with writing the stupidest thing you can think of, thinking no one will ever make this because it might be the thing that everyone likes because a lot of people are real stupid. That's a warning. What do you think of Doubt, Nick? Oh, this movie's great. It is great, isn't it's it? It's fucking... It's like a master class of acting. Mm-hmm. Like you, It's like... Uh, it's like watching a bunch of people fight each other at the same time. <laughs> you have <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman just decking Meryl Streep. Yeah. And then Meryl Streep <laughs> kicking him in the balls and hitting him with like an iron or something. Oh, my God. It is non-stop acting. It's amazing. And then also... Uh, the writer Congo did the same thing for the movie that he did for the play version where the only person in the productions who knew whether or not he was guilty was the actor playing the priest. Ooh, interesting. So it's like, hey, guess what? Tells them. Nobody fucking else knows. Yeah. <laughs> guess what? You're a Catholic priest. You fucking did it, asshole. <laughs> Welcome to hell. Um, This movie is one of many, just like Capote, actually, mm. where I saw this because Jess Rose's mom gave us gift cards to AMC theaters, <laughs> and we burned those out. Seriously, we'd see four movies in like a week. We'd go get an eighth, and just when we ran out of weed, we stopped going to the movies. And usually by then, the gift card was over anyways. That's a great but timeline. It was like, yeah, because like between Capote and Doubt, it's just like, damn, we see really depressing shit with Philip Seymour Hoffman. We're stoned off our asses. <laughs> but it's just like, we always couldn't figure out if her, if her mom knew mm. and was just like, here, just don't drive around. <laughs> or she's just like, you like a movie? Here, go hang out. You guys like the shit? Yeah. Go be sad together. You're going to be sad no matter what. I will say doubt like Capote, though, even though it is sad, is not as depressing as someone. You know what I'm saying? Like, no, it's no, no, so no. It's interesting. Not, it's like. That's the thing, though. Capote and Doubt are sad. Yes. A lot of his other shit are depressing. Yes. Very yes, different. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. Also, once again, I should say, he picks these movies with these ensembles. You mentioned it. Meryl Streep, Amy Adams, yeah. Viola Davis, also Alice Drummond, RIP. Like, uh, just crazy. Susan Blumart, who, if you don't know, like, is this amazing character actor. You know who she is, but... Oh, man, doubt is nuts. You know, in 2008, still talking about the Catholic Church and wide release movies was still pretty edgy. You know, that was, you know, now in 2021, making movies about the Catholic Church being weird is it's still a little, but it's not like 2008. You're like, oh, shit, this is you guys are coming at it. After that, in 2009, he makes a movie called Pirate Radio. One of the actual straight up weaker ones, I think. I didn't see it. It was trying to be Lester Banks, the movie, and I felt it was, uh, yeah. eh, it was okay. He voiced in an animated movie that got a lot of acclaim. It got nominated for Oscars called Mary and Max. Did you ever see that? I didn't. I actually, I totally forgot about it until I was going through the list for this. Yeah, it's one I would like to check out. It uh, Him and Tony Collette and uh, Eric Bana and once again, lots of interesting actors in that. Adam Elliott, who's made a lot of cool claymation stuff. It's, uh, I've never seen it, but once again, one of those ones I think we should check out. He plays a little character in the highest grossing movie ever financed by the BBC, The Invention of Lying, where he plays Jim the Bartender. Are you a Ricky Gervais guy? Not at all. Really? Not He'd at go all. go fuck himself. Wow. He would say, <laughs> say whatever he fucking laughs, I hate him. He would say the same thing to you. Yeah, I fuck don't care. I hate this him. A- <laughs> 
he's ready to raise. He's got sort of what going. You, you think so? You fucking. I don't like Ricky Gervais's movies. I like the original British Office. I love him hosting the Golden Globes and giving people nonstop shit. I appreciate that very much. Openly mocking Scientology, <laughs> openly mocking rich people. It's pretty hilarious. I find Ricky Gervais as a man very amusing to listen to. I don't really enjoy his movies. He teams up with a couple of actors who would go on to make some other stuff. Their names, I think, are Paul Giamanetti, George Cloney, uh, Ryan Goosling, Evan Rachel Wad, Marissa Tomday, Jeffrey Reet, in a movie called The Ides of March, directed by George Cloney. What do you think of the Ides of March, Nick? Skipped it. I watched it. It is the weaker George Clooney movie. It has everyone in it. It is nowhere near as good as Confessions of a Dangerous Mind or Good Night and Good Luck. I felt it was a shoulder shrug. 2011, he comes into one of the Breath of Fresh Air movies for me, another Bennett Miller movie. Steve Zillillian and your boy Aaron Sorkin wrote the script. It is an awesome movie, though. The first time I realized that Jonah Hill could act, it was the 2011 movie Moneyball, which is infinitely watchable. It doesn't matter if you like baseball. It's just a fascinating fucking movie. What do you think of Moneyball, Nick? I'll tell you what. I don't like baseball, and this movie is riveting. It's riveting. I I like math. Mm-hmm. So we had that going for me from the beginning, but I didn't see this movie until uh, 2020. Yeah. You yeah. literally were just, we were just having a conversation. You're like, you should watch that. I'm like, okay. So then I waited six months, like I usually do. <laughs> and then I watched it. And I was one of those things like, I'm going to put this on before I go to bed. And then I was like, fuck, it's four in the morning. I have work in two hours. <laughs> also, why am I going to bed at 2 a.m. every day? Because it's your rhythms. Your it is. You know, I had, I had a random day off and because I only had two days off last month. But I realized the thing I like to do the most when I have a day off is just stay up to like five or six in the morning watching movies. Mm. I never get to do that anymore because it's stupid life. But <laughs> Agreed. I love it too. The fuck are we talking about? Moneyball. Moneyball. Moneyball is great. Everyone in there is really good. I like him as an asshole. Oh, man. He is such a prick in this movie. <laughs> Everybody is. Yeah. It's like prick the movie and it I is. love it. Like, oh, man. And you're right. Math and nerddom and just Brad Pitt is Brad Pitt. You yeah. Know? And he can carry movies that. Yeah, my dad turned me on to this when he was like, you got to see Moneyball. It was one of those ones that came out. I was like, Moneyball? What is this stupid shit? Denver Broncos. Yeah, what is what is this fucking draft day shit? And uh, no, it's it's Moneyball. And no, also draft days. What is this Moneyball shit? <laughs> also, draft day is one of our secret favorite movies. It's one of the craziest things I've ever seen. The fact that Jennifer Garner kisses fucking Dances Wolves. What can I think of his goddamn Kevin <laughs> Kevin Costner. Costner. More passionately than she ever kissed Ben Affleck in his entire life is something. Her and Ben Affleck never kissed. <laughs> they just that was part of the relationship. It. it was like Pretty Woman. Moneyball's amazing. He's amazing in it. We have to talk about. I think under your wall. I'm just gonna guess. I think the 2012 movie might be there. It is one of my favorite movies. It is an amazing PT. He finally is the lead. He is the lead of a Paul Thomas Anderson movie. I'm not gonna bring up my conspiracy theories about. Who it pissed off and why. I am lying. I'm going to bring that up at some point. But 
this movie called The Master. What do you think? We just master takes. Spoiler alert, it's my number one. It's calling it right now. I am in love with this movie. In love. Mm. My bucket list consists of one thing. This is way all before The Joker. I don't give a fuck about that movie. Mm. That movie, I hate that movie. But my bucket list, like since before this movie came out until Joker came out, was one thing. Be stoned at a party and Joaquin Phoenix shows up. Oh, yeah. I don't have to talk to him. I just have to see him from across the room, be really high and go, holy shit, is that Joaquin Phoenix? <laughs> a lot of that was because- I love your, your dreams. They're very attainable. They, I, that's what, My <laughs> dreams are attainable so I can achieve them. So a lot of that is because of this fucking movie. Yeah. This movie is beyond perfect in my eyes. Mm. I love it. I've watched it. I think I watched it at one point like eight days in a row. Man. I was really fucking depressed. But Joaquin Phoenix- this is his best role. Ooh, uh, that's bold. Yes. This is my favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman. Amy Adams in this is goddamn amazing. Mm, uh, agreed. Fat Damon is great in this. Yeah. Everybody's so fucking... Jesse Plemons. Jesse Plemons. Is that his name? Yeah. Whatever. Um, <laughs> no, the master is executed on a level that is hard to attempt, let alone achieve mm. and surpass. It is fucking perfect. It's one of my top five movies of all time. I love this movie more than I will love my second born. I get that. I get it. And the fact that it's the meta-ness of calling it the master of PT almost understand. Oh, and then it's about cults, but it's very particularly about it. One particular cult that is very in control of at least at one point of Hollywood uh, it rhymes with Scientology and that very clearly of... You're talking about mixology? <laughs> yeah, that's right. This movie's a fetus of the bartenders. Uh, it's lavender violet based. Shut up. Can I just have a white claw? And uh, the fact that he plays L. Ron Hubbard. lips? He plays L. Ron Hubbard. L. Ron Hubbard wished that he looked or had the yeah. talent of Philip Seymour Hoffman, okay? That is the only beef I have with it is that Philip Seymour Hoffman is... I'm going to say 6,000 times more handsome than fucking L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah. And he's but, 9 million years. I mean, <laughs> 9 million. Yeah. 9 trillion years. 9 trillion years. More talented on every fucking level. Absolutely. But man, the, the just him being the cult leader and just being this charismatic weirdo that you just start following you follow as Freddy and kind of start believing his bullshit and you follow along and it gets Fellini-esque where Freddy starts to get crazier because of the brainwashing and there's the scene where he starts undressing everyone with his eyes and he's fighting people as a, a photographer at a <laughs> department store and he's having sex with a sand statue it's wild it's electrically wild and the dream sequence towards the end where he's in the movie theater and someone hands him the phone. Yeah. It just, it went into me. Like I, when I first saw it, it just. The scene in the jail, mm. which also he got in a lot of trouble because Joaquin Phoenix was not supposed to break the toilet. Everything <laughs> that, that was like a museum or some shit. Yes. It was like, I don't know what it was. It was like one of a historical spot. They were like yeah. letting them shoot in there. And then he broke a toilet dating back to like the fucking forties and shit. <laughs> but just, the two of them yelling at each other mm. from two different jail cells and just lazy sack of shit. Your whole family hates. It's just like the two of them 
trying to fucking out Al Pacino each other. <laughs> but like when Al Pacino could still, it was like heat. It was like yeah. if heat was two mm. Al Pacinos yes. just yelling at each other. And you have this guy who is trying to be controlled. He's trying to have control over everything. He yeah. wants to be the master. And you have this fucking animal in the next cell over that drives him to madness. So he finally breaks out of that big Lebowski character and just starts yelling at lazy sack of shit. You fucking suck. And he's just yelling at him. Your son hates you. He's just taunting him on the most personal level possible where he just completely shits his pants. (laughs) He does. And just like loses his shit. And then he fucking just waddles back up to the house later on. They improvise them just wrestling on the grass. He's like, uh, when he gets there, just start fighting. It's like, okay, cool. And then he started fighting and that was it. It's like. And all of it feels bizarrely real. As you said, like it's this. Yeah. It is the greatest buddy comedy of all time. It's like living through Joaquin Phoenix's dream the entire movie. <sighs> it's such a masterpiece and he's so great in it. And it's. Like you said, the greatest buddy comedy of all time. The part where they meet is this, it's the opposite of a meet cute where it's yeah. like. He gets wasted, wanders onto his fucking pervert lips boat. And then the next morning, he's just like, <laughs> the next morning, he like walks into the room where Philip Seymour Hoffman is like, how did I get here? He goes, you were drunk and disorderly. You just wandered onto the boat and just completely still drunk from the night before. Well, he finished goes, no, that doesn't sound like me. <laughs> Meanwhile, they both started. He got him drinking hooch. Yeah. That, that in World War II, Freddie picked up a habit of drinking hooch, which if you don't know, is like guys weren't allowed alcohol sometimes. And so they like they would start drinking like, oh, I don't know, like jet fuel, you know, like they'd mix it with like window cleaner to cut it so they could drink it. And like it would fuck them up. But it was like real dangerous. You know who told him that story? Who? Jason Robards. Oh, man. And I said Magnolia because Jason Robards did oh, that my. while he was in the war. <gasps> That's amazing. So he took that and gave it to Freddie. First of all, it's an amazing story. You have to yeah. put that in the movie. It's also a tribute to Jason Robards. <sighs> That's so crazy. And also that they're, the whole movie is two guys trying to out-maniac each other. Yes. One is control and one is chaos. And they're at each other's throats, but they're also best friends. But they also hate each other and they want to fuck each other's wives. And it's like, it's yeah. fucking crazy. It's like... It's a wild movie, and if you haven't seen it, you should see it. And just real fast, touching the Scientology thing, PT had Tom Cruise come. Mm-hmm. They're the only people in the theater. Yes. They watched the movie. Oh. Tom Cruise stood up and goes, shook his hand and goes, it's a wonderfully made film. This is the last time they've ever spoken. And the level of anger, and also, I'm not going to make this a big Scientology thing, but they are genuinely, truly dangerous Elron. Yeah, just talk a, to Tony Scott. I talk to a, a ton of people. Talk like Leah Remini is a hero of mine. Her revealing all of this, how dangerous these fuckers are. Elron straight up had in doctrine of the religion. It was called fair game. If someone fucks with Scientology, you fuck with them. And depending on the level, like if they really try to fuck with Scientology to the point where they're trying to reveal it or like try and destroy it, you destroy them. Like that is actual doctrine in Scientology. If someone tries to kill Scientology, you kill them. Like, that's not a fucking joke. That's not hyperbole. That is for real. And it genuinely always has made me concerned about how Philip Seymour Hoffman died, how Tony Scott died. Look, I don't know, but they've done crazier shit. They've killed people. They infiltrated the government. It was called Operation Snow White. 
They got busted by the FBI. They are a dangerous group. After that, though, you know what's crazy is that would be, in my mind, his last great movie. Uh, In 2012, he made a movie called A Late Quartet. 2014, he made a movie called God's Pockets. 2014, he made a movie called A Most Wanted Man. Any of those movies popping out at you, Nick? I didn't see any of these. I know. Uh, However, maybe the biggest box office successes he was ever in, he was in Hunger Games Part 1 and Part 2. Sadly, those would be his last films. Did you see the Hunger Games movies, Nick? Not if there was a gun to my head. (laughs) I read the book. I read the first book. I thought it was fine. (laughs) I thought it was The Running Man, but with Jennifer Lawrence and Donald Sutherland with a weird wig on. It was a fine movie. It was popcorn. I don't really care. And weirdly enough, of big budget movies that came out with big budget uh, franchises, you don't really see a lot of like Hunger Games con. You know what I'm saying? There isn't like still a residual Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, the MCU. It was big, but it, eh, yeah. Well, sadly, Philip Seymour Hoffman would die of what was now said, the official thing of a drug overdose, relapse of heroin in 2014. And uh, we lost one of the great American artists of all time. So in Blockbuster Film School tradition, it is time for the Blockbuster Film School Dumpster. So, Nick, if you had to pick one movie, even though it's a little tough, of the 50 films... Love Liza. (laughs) Uh, Any particular reason? Adderall and weed. (laughs) I mean, I, I haven't seen Patch Adams, so I can't put it in the dumpster. And, you know, it's not his fault Al Pacino behaves the way he does. <laughs> so I'm going to go with the movie that made me question whether or not I should keep doing drugs. <laughs> That's fair. That is fair. I think the dumpster is easier for me than the wall. Uh, he made 50 films in the 25 years that he worked. And uh, for me, I will say that mine is Patch Adams. It is one of the most schmaltzy, overwrought, doesn't even know what the fuck it's talking about. Bummers. Bummers that Robin Williams is gone. Bummer that he is gone. It's bummer now on many levels. It was a bummer then. It's a bummer now. Patch Adams sucks. Also, uh, bummer now is the name of my sex cult. (laughs) It works on many levels. Yeah. More bumper than a body shop. Okay. I think it's time to go the other way. It's time for the Blockbuster Film School Wall. Well, Nick, we're going to do three. What is your number three of, I would say, the 30 awesome movies that Mr. Philip Seymour Hoffman made? This is harder than I thought it was going to be. Number three is going to be Almost Famous. Oh, an absolute classic. Yeah. Um, Lester Bangs is, it's like he said, he's like, he's talking about like having good music and having good taste, knowing what's cool and what isn't. It's like a currency. Mm. And that's really all that 
uncool people have. It's like, oh, yeah, you know this? Well, you know, these guys? Oh, no, fuck you. Like, <laughs> it's great. And he's also, it's probably the only movie that will be on my wall that's like a feel-good movie. Mm. You're right. Of his movies, it is one with a happy ending. Yeah. And not too many of them have no. that. That's the crazy bit, is at the end of the movie, nobody gets what they want, mm. and they're all happier because of it. That's actually true. They all learn something. Yeah. It's a little sad, but they learn some shit. And, yeah, they become slightly better people. Some of no, them. Some of them. Yeah. Not those. Some are Jason Lee. <laughs> Scientologists. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Also, I'm going to kind of go off of yours. So maybe we'll get kind of six. My number three, I think, is The Talented Mr. Ripley. When I saw it in the theater, it blew my mind. As I said, I love him in it. I love This that. movie has a happy ending. If you're Matt Damon. <laughs> Kind. <laughs> Do Graham Greene books have happy endings? They have question mark endings. But him as Freddie Miles, he is such a... Him as the oversexed playboy who then becomes the detective who tries to solve the murder of his friend. He is the old... And you start to like him because you start to hate Matt Damon. It is such a cool character. It is such an interesting twist. I dig the talented Mr. Ripley. Uh, Nick, what is your number two? Punch Drunk Love. Ooh. I mean, Punch Drunk is amazing. Yeah. it's. I mean, we talked about it a lot, but yeah, the story of Superman, the story of Young. It's, you know what movie we skipped over, though? The 25th Hour. Yes. Yes, which I think we should just bring up. I'm sorry. I literally, I don't know why we skipped over that, but what's your take on 25th Hour? I just would love to know it. I'm sorry. Fuck him. <laughs> I don't give a shit about Ed Norton. <laughs> Uh, listen to our Spike Lee episode where we talk about the 25th hour yeah. in a little more in-depth. One of our better episodes. I actually kind of like the 25th hour. It's on your wall in the Spike Lee episode. It is. It is, I think. However, though, of Philip Seymour Hoffman movies, I don't think it's on my wall. It is not on my wall. But I, no. I had to bring it up because I thought about it. It might be my four or five. Punch Drunk is amazing. Yeah. Don't like Adam Sandler. Yeah. Only because of how lazy of a fuck he is. <laughs> and... <laughs> Paul Thomas Anderson, like, walked up to him and go, hey, I love your shit. Could you pretend to be an actor for this movie, though? He's an amazing actor. He's a lazy actor. <laughs> he seems like, to be working pretty hard when he works at his jewelry shop. Yeah, that's the other thing. Like, between this movie and Uncut Gems, I didn't like any Adam Sandler movies. Because <laughs> they're all made by, like, Happy Madison, and they're all, like, diminishing yeah. returns. So then you get some directors who understand real anxiety and understand real human conditions. And you get this. And then also you put him opposite Eric Bogosian, who's completely <laughs> underrated or fucking Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's one of the greatest actors of all time. Correct. And then it's the same thing with Ethan, like when Ethan Hawke was in, uh, before the devil knows you're dead. Yes. You have to fucking step up your shit. You otherwise you're going to look like a fucking, doorknob being humped <laughs> by a fucking you know aardvark or something you're gonna get the shit knocked out of you the whole goddamn movie yes like an asshole yes a punishing movie it's literally mm-hmm. being punished for your sins my number two i'm gonna also stick with pt and i'm gonna say boogie nights i think boogie nights is one of the greatest movies ever made it is as we said it gets tragic and dark and hard to watch as it goes along just like Life, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> but he, but he's amazing. In he it. is amazing in it. He is a constant bright spot in it. And 
It's like you were saying about like doubts on you have to watch it. Yes. Once you watch the seventies, yeah, and you see that thing pop up and it says the eighties, and you're just like, oh shit. <sighs> well, I'm invested in it now. Yeah. I was like, I'm not going to bed. No. You finish the movie every fucking time. I know. Shout out again to Alfred Molina oh, and Jesse's, Jesse's girl. <laughs> Fuck you, Rick Springfield. Wait, is he dead? No, Rick Springfield is totally alive. Fuck you, and Rick he will come after us, just like Renee Zellweger. We're making a lot of enemies. Also, even though a lot of terrible, terrible things happen, the ending for Heather Graham's character, kind of hopeful, kind of uplifting, that she like it, goes back of, to school. Like, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a hopeful ending for all of them because, eh, I mean... Not that one guy who was the porn producer who ends up in prison. Uh, I think that's a happy ending. <laughs> you well, fuck with oh, kids. for life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like it's, uh, I mean, and then Dirk gets clean. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, everybody kind of figures out their life. They yeah, just, life is life. That's when Summer Rain is that Summer Rain, right? Yes, she makes her start Am- directing commercials and shit. Amber Waves. Amber Waves. Yes, Summer Rain's good. Way though. off. Summer Rain's a good name though. All right, Nick. I think you said it. What is your number one? Ides of March. <laughs> I it's love me, my boyfriend's back. I love me a middle of the road George Clooney film. <laughs> the master takes my breath away. I don't know what to fucking yeah. say. Yeah. It's hypnotic. Yeah. The part with the motorcycle. Oh. When they're just like, oh, the desert's flats. It's, it's insane. Yeah. And then that part where Laura Linney calls him out and just, he freaks out. He's, these are the new pages. <laughs> and she's just like, oh, okay. So you're full of shit, yeah. fucker. Yeah. And then also- Oh my God, the part where he interrogates them and the questions, and he just like, don't blink. He's just yelling at him. He's like, I don't know. I don't know. And he goes, close your eyes. And then he's just there. It's fucking incredible because A, you just watch Joaquin Phoenix get brainwashed. Mm-hmm. B, Paul Thomas Anderson just brainwashed all of us. Yes. And then C, the acting is fucking ridiculous. And then right after that, they smoke cool cigarettes, and it's the fucking funniest part of the fucking movie. <laughs> it really is. They start giving each other shit. Yeah. It's a buddy comedy again. It's a buddy comedy. <laughs> if they would, you know, it's running scared, but like on a completely different level. If they were trying to start a cult. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with this. I think The Master would probably be, for me also, probably at the top of my list. However, my number one is the other one. It's Capote. I think Capote is unstoppably good. He's amazing in it. I said it before, but he just, no one else could pull this off. Yeah. Literally no one. There's no. Cannot take your, hang on every word. Right. Cannot look away. Even actors I absolutely adore. I don't think anybody else could have done this. Could have really, I don't, there's no way. It's just. Harrison Ford couldn't have done it because Truman Capote very famously did not point at people. (laughs) It's so true. Also, however, I would watch Harrison Ford I try would watch to do it. Shit out of that. You're gonna read this book. And you're gonna read it now. Um, he was uh, kind of more. Um, uh, he had more of a, a slight drawl. He was very. Uh, got it. You switch the samples. You switch the chapters. Harrison, you can't just keep changing out lines from the fugitive and putting in references to books. Oh, okay. 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 I get it. Uh, can I wear my earring in this scene? No, you can take that earring out. Well, team, I think that's it. Any other final thoughts on Philip Seymour Hoffman? I would trade all of the Scientologists forever 
for Philip Seymour Hoffman to make one more movie. I yes, yes, I agree with that. I a hundred percent agree with that. And man, mega R.I.P. Truly, obviously, we've done some other artists and actors who have left this veil and gone to the other side. But man, I've exactly as you said. I've just wish there like were more Philip Seymour Hoffman stuff coming out. Yeah. Still, it is a great loss, a great, great loss. Also kind of rare a little bit just to wax on it that a lot of times you lose up and coming actors cause they are playing with fire cause they're young, you know, that happens and you lose actors who are older because that's the way life works. But to lose somebody really right in the prime of being a mega A-lister who seem to have basically a big, long career ahead of them still was still kicking out stuff, still up to interesting stuff. I think that in a way even makes it more tragic, you know, yeah. it just man. Cause if he, you know, wanted to keep playing villains, he could have been in a fast and the furious movie and they'd be the only one nominated for a fucking Oscar. I mean, it's true. And that he was such a skilled actor. Like as he aged, he could have just played different, weirder, older characters and gotten yeah. weirder and weirder. It was not like he was a heartthrob who, as he aged, could he continue to act, you know, or was he a niche you know, no, the dude could do anything you wanted him to do. It was bizarre. It was the David Bowie of acting. He really, he really, truly, truly. As much as I love like Daniel Day Lewis and Denzel Washington and Leonardo DiCaprio and stuff, I just don't know. Those guys are still kind of rooted in certain elements of their personality. And I feel like that was the cool thing with Philip Seymour Hoffman was he was kind of a chameleon in that way where his personality would disappear and it would just be a new personality, an entirely new character. If you, yeah. as we were going, Some I hope guy who just randomly shits his pants at an art show. <laughs> I'm just like the bravado dickhead character versus then the manservant character versus the weird, sad misunderstood boom guy versus the egotistical famous writer who uses people and then feels bad because he starts to love the people he's using into the cult leader who is out of his mind. I mean, it's just, and it just is effortless in yeah. to us, you know, it's to us, to him. Like yeah. it seemed to take a toll. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, if you're going to play people with some sort of mental health issues, mm. you need to have some sort of perspective on it. If you're, you know, shooting or snorting heroin, there is something there that yeah. is dark. And then you take that darkness and you turn it into several other things over and over. Right. Also a little lesson. And if it wasn't the Scientologist who murdered him, then look, if you're in your forties and your wife leaves you, it sucks. And in your 20s, you kind of fucked around with hard drugs. Just a little lesson. Your 40-something-year-old body, 50-something-year-old body cannot handle as much heroin right off the bat as you could when you were in your 20s, okay? Like, don't, like, fall off the boat. And that's all drunks, you know? It's like, when I was fucking 22, I could drink an entire bottle of Jack Daniels and yeah. eat a bunch of hydrocodone. My wife left me. I could still do that. I don't know. No. You might have a heart attack. Be careful. Like, just be careful. Yeah. I mean, I blacked out yesterday. <laughs> but the, we're and then I dropped my chicken. Well, never. Well, I'm never going to die. <laughs> yeah. I'm never going to die. Well, on that note, team, 
We've been the Blockbuster Film School. I'm also, Alex. real fast, yeah. if either one of us dies before this episode comes out, I sure hope this not. is going to be such a disaster of an ending. Uh, well, Unless it's Brian. Well, <laughs> well it, it won't come out if exactly, <laughs> Brian. Yeah. Hopefully none of us die before this episode comes out. I love The Money Money Boston said, you don't knock on wood. <laughs> I think this is a great episode. I heart you guys. And if you're still listening, we love you. Follow us on Instagram. Follow us on all the nonsense. Truly hit us up, especially on Instagram. Nick does a great job with our Instagram. I love the videos you post. They're amazing. Brian Tepps obviously is the greatest producer, truly, that I've ever known. I love what you do. And um, we appreciate every single one of you who listens. I think the greatest thing you can do is to just tell other people. If you like the podcast, please tell them. I think that's the thing I would part with you. Especially if they're famous. Especially if they're famous. And if you guys want to come to my cult up front before you cross the bridge, it costs $15,000. So you're going to need to max out your credit cards. Just like regular religions. You know, when you go to a synagogue and they say, in order to for you to talk to a rabbi in any way, you have to pay us $15,000. You know, like a religion. Oh, wait. Anyways, so, as I said, I'm Alex Bonner. Joined, as always, by the headmaster, Mr. Nicholas Souter, and Super Bruce Brian Tepps. We love you guys. You're doing a great job. Keep your chin up. I know shit is weird. But keep coming back to the Blockbuster Film School. We'll see you guys next week.